You probably know and appreciate the value of asking great questions. In fact, great questions can, can add value to any number of different areas of life. When you think about those individuals that you would respect or look up to as really great leaders, they're probably individuals who asked really great questions. In a coaching network that I'm in, whether it's the, the guys that, that I coach or my coach, one of the, the common refrains that we appreciate is, is being asked to consider great questions that make us think more deeply or differently about matters that we maybe haven't even explored. Great questions have a lot of value in the classroom. Great teachers ask great questions to get more out of their students. And in turn, students who ask great questions of their teachers help their teachers dial in and, and tune into to their learning needs as well. So as there's much to be said for asking great questions, which is exactly what the individual did who approached Jesus in our gospel this morning. Not only did he ask him a great question, he asked him the greatest question that anybody could ever ask. You already heard it in the gospel. The certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the greatest question. It demonstrates his awareness that what we have here and now isn't all there is. There is an afterlife. And not only that, but in asking the question, he is seeking to ascertain a confidence, a knowledge of what's going to happen to him in the life to come. So a great question indeed. Sadly, as great as the, the question is, it's terribly sad that more people aren't, aren't wrestling with it in this day and age. It is the most important question that anybody could ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be sure of my salvation? Yet it appears, at least in my experience, that fewer and fewer people are even concerned with that question. Even at the beginning of my ministry, it was much more normal to, to have a conversation with somebody and, and to ask them about these things. Well, what do you think happens to you when you die? And most people, more than, than not, would say, well, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to heaven because I've been a pretty good person. And at least you could appreciate that they recognized there was a heaven. Whereas more and more, people are not even interested in the question itself. Or afterlife. They might have their own mind made up about what happens. They might speculate about it. But by and large, they are simply indifferent to this most important question. But we aren't here this morning or watching online to, to wonder or lament about all those out there, everybody who's not asking this question and more importantly, confident of the answer to the question. But rather, we want to apply it to ourselves to make sure that we've asked the question, and again, more importantly, that we have the confident answer to that question. And as we have focused on the Lord increasing our faith throughout this series, a stronger faith, a strengthened faith, is one that is more and more firmly grounded in the answer to this question that the individual asked this morning. He seemed pretty, pretty confident as you look at the dialogue between Jesus and this individual. And yet, I don't know that we have to really read into the account too much to pretend that he had some ulterior motive or agenda in asking this question. It appears that as confident as he might have been in his own efforts, this individual, this young ruler, was interested in knowing for certain what was next. 
What did he have to do to make sure that he had eternal life? And by now, if you have listened to, studied, digested the the words and teachings of Jesus, you're not surprised by his reaction. As he often does, Jesus doesn't give a direct answer to the question. Sometimes he doesn't answer the question at all, but instead gives an answer that is needed to be heard by the individual rather than answering the question they ask. And in this case, too, he doesn't come right out of the gates answering the individual's question. He could have. He could have said to the individual, all right, well, you want to know? Believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and life and salvation. Heaven is your home. That's it. And, And it would have been a shorter account and the man could have been on his way. But had Jesus responded that way to the individual, he would have left with a very jaded idea of salvation. Because again, as we see in the dialogue, he expresses confidence in his own past ability to keep God's commands. And so the the truth is, from Scripture, very clear that if we want to insert our efforts, our works, into this equation of salvation, it's not going to work. Our works, our efforts, plus grace, still equal hell. Our works, our efforts have no place in that equation. Only grace does, as we'll see next Sunday as we observe the Reformation, the the joyful return to that truth that grace and faith alone are how we have salvation. So Jesus doesn't answer the individual directly because he needs more. This individual, this man, first, before he could hear the gospel, needed to hear how much he needed Jesus. We mentioned that he was confident. And his term, in terms of his confidence, he approached Jesus, asking him, addressing him as good teacher. And when we, when we realize what Jesus is trying to do for this individual here, that maybe helps us understand why he takes a moment to deal with why the man called him good. There's lots of speculation about why Jesus responded. Well, was Jesus denying that he was good? Was Jesus denying that he was God? No. He was simply turning it around on the individual. Jesus obviously knows who's good. He knows that God is good. He knows he is good. But he's asking the individual, why do you call me good? What is your understanding of good when you address me that way? And I think there's a very clear indicator here that Jesus is kind of trying to drop a hint as he begins this conversation with the individual. Because his response about being good is what? God alone is good. Well, what does that have to do with the conversation? This man just asked what he had to do to be sure of inheriting eternal life. Another way we might frame that question is, how good do I have to be? How good is good enough to get into heaven? And you see how Jesus is kind of indirectly answering that? He's like, wait a minute. You want to talk about good? God alone is good. And that should have made it clear to the individual, there's no room for this conversation about how good do I have to be, about what you have to do, because only God is good, therefore you can't be good enough to inherit eternal life. Even though the man was quite confident in his good efforts. As Jesus laid out the law for him, you heard his response in verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And and don't, before you write him off, Presume that he was just being arrogant. The way that he was brought up with his understanding of Jewish law, he probably thought he had kept those rather well, that he was doing a pretty good job. 
And if we can be honest, we're right there with him. When you consider the, the laws, the commands that Jesus laid out, he says in verse 20, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. But we, we've kept most of those on the grand scale, right? On the, the big stage, uh, uh, in the biggest sense of those words, that, that wouldn't we say, well, I've never, I've never committed a, an affair, never had an affair outside of my marriage, I've never killed, I've never murdered anybody, I've never committed grand theft auto, never broken and entered into somebody's house, I've never given false testimony under oath in a court of law. Yeah, I've, I've actually kept these things pretty well too and we see how easily our thinking can line up right with this individual and how easily we, like this ruler, can deceive our thing, ourselves into thinking we're actually doing a pretty good job. So how does Jesus address that? Jesus realizes the need to take the law and apply it in a different way so that it hits this ruler differently. What does he tell him? Go sell everything and give it away. To understand what Jesus is, is doing there, consider, hypothetically, you're going into the, the doctor because you have an ankle injury. And you inform the doctor that your ankle is hurt and you want to make sure that it's not broken. And as you see the doctor, he, he asks you to move your elbows and then, and then move your knees to make sure that they are moving in alignment and everything looks good. And then the doctor takes your forearm and he applies pressure in different spots each time asking, does this hurt? Does this hurt? Now, of course, that doctor is of, of no use to you. He's not helping your ankle injury by addressing different parts of your body that aren't injured. Jesus realizes as we do, the law works the same way. I can be very confident in certain areas of God's laws in certain stages or seasons of my life, but what I need is for the law to convict me and expose my sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did with this individual. And based on his response, we know that the law, as Jesus applied it in this way, hit the mark. Jesus said this to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. We know the man's response at those words. It could have been different, right? If it was, if it was a heart born out of faith, his response could have been, oh, is that all you need, Jesus? Well, good news, I am independently wealthy. The Lord has blessed me richly, and if that's what I get to do, then just think of all of the good that I can do in so many poor people's lives by giving it all away so generously and skipped off in, in delight at the privilege of being able to help those less fortunate than him. Actually, that's not all that far off with another account in Scripture you might be familiar with, Zacchaeus, wee little Zacchaeus, who must have known Jesus and the gospel was for a, a cheat and a tax collector like him. Because when he encountered Jesus, that really was his attitude. Lord, Lord, I'll give half of everything I own away and, and four times back to anybody that I have cheated. That was repentance. That was the gospel bringing about delight in Zacchaeus' heart. But you see a different reaction from the law in this ruler's heart, where the gospel engendered generosity and delight at the privilege. The law brought about despair. And that's exactly how the man went away. Verse 23, when he heard this, 
he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus then follows it up with a a teaching to the man and, and to those listening how difficult it is for the rich to enter into heaven. And he's not slamming rich people as if that's not possible, but he knows how inclined our heart is to gravitate toward wealth. But he could equally insert any sin that we gravitate toward as well and say how difficult it is for those who are attracted to that to get into heaven. Because anything, no matter what it is, that is loved more than the Lord is is my God. That is my idol. For this man, it was his wealth. And he went away sad. Jesus said, if you're going to attach yourself to anything in this world, a camel's going to have better luck getting through the eye of a needle. And when Jesus explains it that way, we totally understand the response of everybody that is, is listening. You heard it again in, in the gospel. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Remember, this man would have been somebody that they would have held up. You heard his own admission that he was doing a pretty good job of keeping the commands. He said that to Jesus. And he was wealthy. And at that time, there was sometimes the perception that God's favor, as it is today sometimes, mistakenly so, God's favor is expressed by blessing people with financial wealth. You must be doing something right if you're rich and wealthy. God is showing you his favor. So you couple all of that, you take that together, these individuals would have thought, this guy, if anybody had the chance of getting into heaven, it was this guy. And you're saying it'd be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle? How can anybody be saved? And right where that crowd, that that small group of people listening, right where that, that ruler as well, right where they were is where God wants everybody to be at some point. Hopeless helpless, absolutely despairing of self, realizing that there is no effort on my part, that there is no measurement that I can ever attain. There's no being good enough or trying hard enough that is ever going to satisfy God's definition of good, which is perfection. And that leaves us in despair. Because if we think we can do it on our own, we're only going to find ourselves on our own. And to those who are there, whether that's you today or at any point in the past or future, the words that Jesus speaks next breathe life and hope. It is living water for parched souls. Because Jesus says the words that we long to hear, the words that we need to hear when we realize that our situation is helpless. Jesus says in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And what, dear friends, is impossible with man? Saving yourself. What is possible with God? Salvation. And let's take it a step further. Not just possible... We're not talking just plausible. We're talking about actual. We're talking about the reality of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that this is a done deal, 100% completed and carried out through Jesus Christ. And how refreshing is that in a world that is so comfortable and okay with unfinished and undone? Right? You've experienced this, whether it's you directly or a friend who has hired a contractor, and the contractor is, is almost done with the work, maybe 90, 95%, and then doesn't show up anymore because in his mind, he's done, the work is finished. 
even though there's that little bit that hasn't gotten painted or that last screw or nail that hasn't gotten pounded. Or a coworker or a classmate that you're working together with on a project or an assignment and, and they do their part and hand it in to you only you find out they did most of their part and they're expecting you to finish up some small portion of their work in addition to yours. And in this world of undones and unfinished, God comes to us in Jesus Christ and says, finished, done, complete. No more for you to do. I have taken what is impossible for you and I have made it possible. I have made it a reality. When even on our best days we try to right our wrongs or, or correct our, our infractions of the past or our offenses against somebody else, realizing that even, even the good that we try to do to counter that is never going to be enough, Jesus says, I am enough. I'm the good that you need for heaven. And not only that, but in going to Calvary, in going to the cross, I have covered all your failures, your failed attempts at being good enough. All of your sin has been washed away and paid for in full. What is impossible has been made possible. Jesus lived the impossibly perfect life that we could not. He died where we deserve to die. And then he also did the impossible in rising from the dead so that by his resurrection we have the confidence, the assurance that we too will rise from the dead. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the most important question any one of us can ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer, the answer is nothing. Because Jesus did it all. Believe it. Amen.